Welcome to MHM Podcast Network on MovieHouseMemories.com. Podcast for pod people. Our feature presentation begins now. You're listening to Lunchtime Movie Review from LunchtimeMovieReview.com. And we are the children of the 80s. Welcome back to another episode of Lunchtime Movie Review, the podcast where we look back at some of our childhood favorites and see if they stand the test of time. I'm Patrick. I'm Chad. I am Chris. G'day, I'm Shane. And with us uh, this week is a brand new child of the 80s, Jonna. Hi. Hi. Jonna's already been on one of the other podcasts. She was on the Star Wars The Force Awakens uh, Movie House Concessions, the inaugural Movie House Concessions back in January. Uh, But this is the first time on Lunchtime. Welcome, Jonna. Thank you. Hopefully not the last time, but we'll we'll see if you want to come back after this experience. <laughs> I was going to say, it depends on the movies you pick. All right. And this week we are reviewing 1982's The World According to Garp, the second film, of, starring film of Robin Williams' long career, and Chad's pick. But before we get into Chad's, without a doubt, exquisite summary, first a word from our sponsor. This podcast is brought to you by Pooh Percy's Finishing School for Feminists. The single greatest gift a woman can give herself is the gift of self-reliance. And Pooh Percy's Finishing School for Feminists is there to teach you how. You can choose from a wide array of classes that will provide you with valuable, valuable information that you can apply in every area of your life and improve your personal safety. We even teach you how to open tightly sealed jars all by yourself without the aid of men, guaranteed. Pooh Percy's Finishing School for Feminists refuses to let you be a victim by offering extensive firearm training and self-defense classes that will teach you the lifelong skills necessary to protect yourself or any other beloved Ellen Jameson from the horned dog men and their evil lust. So quit standing there like the cat's got your tongue and call Pooh Percy's Finishing School for Feminists today. <laughs> and that's it for the world according to Garp, that half hour <laughs> advertisement. <laughs> All right. Chad, you have the summary? I do. Hopefully uh, this is uh, shorter than Chris's uh, ad, but I doubt it. So we'll see. Well, I'd like to see how hilarious you can make this summary because this is a very good comedy. Chris. Oh, my God. Your ads have become less ad and more infomercial. So... I don't know. This was not a fun one to try to write up uh, with all the context behind it. So we'll see what I can do here. Our world begins with a young nurse, Jenny Fields, introducing her parents to her newborn son, T.S. Garp. Jenny calmly, yet very graphically, describes how she had herself impregnated by a dying soldier while serving as a nurse during World War II. Jenny, who always wanted a child without the burden of dealing with its father, details how the soldier, a technical sergeant who could only say his last name, Garp, had a constant erection due to priapism. Shortly before his death, Jenny decided to remove her undies, mount the brain-dead ball turret gunner, and use the sperm to complete her mission. It must have been a direct hit, or else this movie never would have happened. Jenny begins working at an all-boys prep school. She has her hands full raising Garp, who is forever curious about the fighter pilot father he'll never know. 
GURP pursues amateur wrestling because he sees wrestlers wearing headgear similar to a pilot's helmet. GARP, when not trying to be his father, spends his free time playing with two sisters, Cushy and Pooh Percy. Cushy, the slut of the duo, teaches GARP about lust, while Pooh, who could be described as pure evil, teaches GARP what it's like to be viciously attacked by their family dog. As a teen, GARP dedicates himself to becoming a famous writer. He meets and becomes immediately smitten with Helen Holm, the daughter of his wrestling coach. Helen tells Garp she doesn't like wrestlers or writers, but would marry someone who is good at both, which is very logical. Garp writes Helen a short story and informs her that he's going off to New York to become a serious writer. The asexual Jenny, inspired by Garp's decision to become a famous writer, decides that she has spent enough time with horny young boys at the Academy and joins Garp in the Big Apple. Amazed by New York's eccentricities, Jenny has coffee with a hooker to talk about lust. Ms. Fields wants to know if the hooker gets any physical or emotional enjoyment from her job. Jenny is shocked to learn that prostitution is actually illegal, believing women should be able to do whatever they want to do with their bodies. Then, like all loving mothers, Jenny pays for Garp to have sex with the hooker. This incident somehow inspires Jenny, who begins to write a novel called A Sexual Suspect. At the same time, Garp continues penning his first novel. Helen falls in love with the story and decides to marry Garp, who is now a real writer and still a wrestler. A Sexual Suspect becomes a nationwide bestseller and feminist manifesto, making Jenny the figurehead of the feminist movement. So much so, a man attempts to assassinate her at a book signing. All of the attention Jenny gets not only worries Garp, but also infuriates him because his first novel is critically acclaimed but a slow seller, while Jenny's book has taken over the world. Garp, Helen, and their son Duncan take a holiday to Jenny's house. While there, Garp discovers Jenny has opened her home to women needing a safe haven from physical and emotional abuse. When Garp tries to speak with one of the women, he quickly learns she has no tongue and, quote, speaks via a small pad of paper. Garp then meets a transsexual woman by the name of Roberta Muldoon. She opens up to Garp, informing him that she is the former tight end for the Philadelphia Eagles. Roberta informs Garp the women with no tongues are part of the Ellen James Society. The sorority voluntarily removed their own tongues as a sign of support for an 11-year-old girl who was brutally raped by two men. These rapists cut out Ellen James's tongue so she would not be able to report them to the authorities. As an adult living in incognito, Ellen James asked the society to disband, preventing other women from mutilating themselves, but the society refused to listen to Ellen. Garp, never understanding why these women would intentionally harm themselves, was adamantly against it, and having his mother involved with them made matters even worse. After Garp and Helen have their second child, Walt, Helen begins teaching graduate school. She is tempted by the advances of a young student named Michael Milton. Believing Garp had an affair of his own, which he did, she decides to pursue an affair with Michael. 
Michael's scorned girlfriend, Marge, delivers a letter to Garp exposing Helen and Michael's affair. Garp, who's as mad as hell, takes their sons and leaves the house. Helen comes home, only to find an empty house and Marge's letter sitting on the kitchen table. Garp calls Helen, telling her that she has has to break it off with Michael immediately, and no one last fucks for the road. Helen ends things with Michael over the phone, but he will not listen, insisting on seeing her one last time at the Garp household. Helen joins Michael in his car, pleading with him to end the relationship. Michael wants one last romp and convinces a reluctant Helen to perform fellatio on him. While Helen is going down on Mike, Garp and his boys fly into the driveway at full speed in Garp's car. They rear-ender. <laughs> to make a bad situation horrifying, the car crashes into Mike's car. Michael has his tallywhacker chopped off, chomped off, excuse me, by Helen. Garp breaks his jaw and lacerates his tongue. Duncan loses an eye, and Walt tragically dies in the car crash. Garp, Helen, and Duncan physically and emotionally rehabilitate at Jenny's house. Garp and Helen reconcile and have a baby girl. Rejuvenated by the love for his family, Garp starts writing a controversial book about Ellen James and the society. This book, Ellen, explains how the society goes against Ellen James's wishes, continuing to mutilate themselves. Jenny and Roberta attend a political rally where Jenny is the keynote speaker. As Jenny introduces herself, Roberta spots a sniper hiding nearby. She isn't fast enough to prevent the gunman from shooting Jenny, taking her life. The Ellen Jamesians hold an all-woman memorial service in honor of Jenny Fields. Garp, wanting to be around others who share the same pain that he does, decides to dress in drag and attends the service with Roberta. Garp's childhood nemesis, Pooh, now an Ellen Jamesian, spots Garp, fingering him to the rest of the crowd. The society ferociously attacks Garp, who is saved by Roberta and a mystery woman. The mystery woman turns out to be Ellen James herself. She thanks Garf and successfully helps him escape because she is touched by the book he dedicated to her. Now a prep school wrestling coach, Garp has gotten his life back to normal, if he ever had one. One day during practice, a woman dressed as a nurse walks into the wrestling room and shoots Garp three times in the chest. The woman turns out to be the bane of Garp's existence, Pooh. Our last images of Garp are flying through the air to an area hospital. Flying just like the father he never knew. And that, my friends, is the world according to Garp. That was hilarious. <laughs> I know it. It is. <laughs> the way you, you color it is such a laugh riot. So. I'm sorry. I didn't know how else to do it. <laughs> I don't think there's any other way to do that. <laughs> it, it took me a week to write this in about five or six drafts, and I'm like, man, I need to go see a shrink now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. The World According Garp, released on July 23rd of 1982, the same day as a classic film named Zapped with uh, Scott Baio and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas, a particular favorite of both Chad and I. The same month as The Secret of Nim, Tron, Six Pack with Kenny Rogers, Summer Lovers, Night Shift, Tex, and An Officer and a Gentleman. 
It grossed just over $29 million. It was the 25th highest grossing film of 1982, right behind Tron, Young Doctors in Love, and Sophie's Choice, and right in front of Victor Victoria, Blade Runner, and Airplane 2, the sequel. Uh, It was made on a budget of $17 million. It was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Supporting Actor for John Lithgow, who lost to Lou Gossett Jr. for An Officer and Gentleman, and Best Supporting Actress for Glenn Close, who lost to Jessica Lange for Tootsie. Uh, and that is the numbers on the world according to Garp. All right, world according to Garp, based on a novel which I believe came out in 1978. Who has read the novel? Not me. <laughs> Nobody. <laughs> Nobody. I have. I, just, I read have the you? novel. I read the. Believe it or not, I read the novel in 1982 when this film came out. And the, as risque as this film was the novel is worse it is talking about a (laughs) sexual awakening for a 10 year old that i mean the book starts out with a graphic description of her basically raping t.s garp the technical sergeant garp in the hospital (laughs) so it it is a very very uh a sexualized book with a lot of uh, uh, the obvious undertones that come out in the film as well but i was curious to see if anyone i read it because Robin Williams was in the film. I liked, I like Mork. I saw Popeye. I liked Popeye at the time. Of course I'll read this book. And my, my dad in some unfit parenting mode <laughs> decided, sure, I'll let you read my copy of this book. And I read it and it took me about a month. He had already read it. I'd read it before I saw the film. Yes. No, no. Your dad had read it before he gave you the book. Yes. He had already read it before he gave me the book. Oh yeah. And, and then we watched the film together. So, and the, the film is hits high points of the book. The book is much more detailed about thing. And it is an excellent book. I still own a copy to this day. I highly recommend it to anyone, but all right. Well, that was the end of that discussion. I thought somebody else. <laughs> no, no, seriously. I've always said it's one of those books. I think everybody should go read after they've seen the movie because I mean, I'm sure we'll get into this down the road, but there's a lot of things that are left unexplained in this movie. And the primary one, I think, uh, I see on the internet is everybody tries to figure out why Pooh hates Garp so much. And from what I understand, they explain it in a lot more detail in the book. Yeah, it's it's explained in more detail. There's a little bit more a lo- lifetime animosity there. Uh, I think the ma- the you know the final straw is the in the book he doesn't write the book, Ellen. He writes a, th- a different book, um, but the Ellen Jamesians don't like him still nonetheless. So, uh, but it is, so in the film, they kind of almost color it as she's an Ellen Jamesian. He wrote this book. They hated him for it. They, you know, they sent him death threats and things like that and kind of write it off as that's kind of, in my interpretation, that's kind of why she does it, but it is more, it goes back to their childhood more in the book than it does in, in the film. Cause in the film, she, he doesn't really do much to her. I mean, he, he's nice to her. He never, you know, he's more interested in cushy, but that's that's cushy. the worst thing that he did was bite her dog's ear off. <laughs> yeah. Was there an underlying theme in the book where Pooh blames um, Garp for advancing Cushy's sexual awareness, if you will, and becoming think, a slut or whatever you want to say? And it, I've read it twice, both times in the 80s. So it's been a long okay. time. Since I, okay. I don't remember that at all. I think it's a class thing, honestly. There Aren't they supposed to be a, a well-to-do, 
upper class family with good, strong bloodlines. And the dad has instilled in them that uh, if you have it's your bloodlines that matters. And here uh, Garp is a bastard child, so he's not worthy of them. And so she hates him for that and what he represents. I, I don't remember that other than that in the film, they kind of write it. The father kind of writes it off as just kind of like, eh, just kids will be kids. But in, I remember in the book, it, him not liking Garp for a, a, a much more dramatic reason, but I don't remember it as being class. That probably floated right okay. over my, I read it when I was 10 and probably when I was 17. So a lot of stuff probably went over my head, but I actually pulled it off my shelf. Cause I was like, I'm going to reread this now after seeing the film again. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. I felt that. I've never read the book, but watching the film, I just kept thinking about the book and if it was going to be different, and it makes me want to go out and buy a copy and definitely read it. No, I, I definitely recommend it. I'd lost my copy in the 90s, and I bought a, a paperback copy of it and threw it on my shelf in the, the 2000s, and I haven't gone back to re- reread it, but that was my intention when I bought it. I was like, I'd like to watch read this again as an adult and see what it means to me now. I'm going to get a tattered copy and go to Starbucks and be pretentious about it. <laughs> Wear a little sweater, turtleneck. Uh, well, reading the book might help me prepare because I certainly wasn't prepared for the movie and that finale. I'm sorry about this, Patrick, but I've got to uh, admit I was crying again. It was just really heavy emotional stuff, and uh, I have never seen the film. I, I don't know why. I just never got around to seeing it. I remember working at the video shop and I know the cover with the baby and, and just over the years, for some reason, it might've been just a little bit unavailable and hard to get, but I'd never had a copy until recently and watched it for the podcast. Just amazing stuff. It was really heavy, emotional, and it brought a lot out in me during the, during watching that two hours and 15 minutes. All right. I, I need, I need to take just, a step back for just a second. You had not seen this movie. You, exactly. I Shane cannot believe Adam. it. Oh, my dear God. <laughs> oh, my. I mean, you own Hottie and the Naughty, do, do you not? <laughs> and you hadn't seen this film. It's not not owned it. Seen it. Ever. I, I, I know it's a confession. It's a it's something I'm, I can't – I don't have words for. Yes, I have never <laughs> seen this movie until watching it for the podcast. And believe me, I'm ashamed. All right. Well, I'm going to put on the same dress that Shane just put on and say that <laughs> watching this film, I actually cried watching this film this time. And I think this the film has a def, di, different yeah, excuse me, different resonance to me now as an adult than it did when I was a child, when I was a teenager, when I was uh, a young adult, before I got married, before I had kids. The, the, the whole – the kind of the after effects of Walt's death – that was really hard for me to watch just the imagining losing a child and under those types of circumstances and the, the pain they must be going through that, that part of the, the film pretty much to the end, just all, it really kind of, you know, bit into me and that really touched me emotionally this time seeing it that I had not seen uh, that I never did before. You know, I knew Walt was going to die. And yet when I, and when it happened in the film, I was like, Oh gosh, you know, I was sitting there with my sleeping one year old watching the film and I was going, Oh, that, that, that's hard to process. Reminds you to exactly. be a more responsible parent. doesn't yeah. it? <laughs> I do not drive a car into a driveway without knowing what's there. <laughs> and I tell my wife to take all her boyfriends and make sure you're not giving them blow jobs in the driveway. Take it down the street. Just take it down the street. <laughs> Yeah, that way they might get hit by a guy in a red truck, though. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> All right. Yeah. There's well, a that's... fifth member of this podcast. Jonna, would you like to say something? <laughs> um, 
Oh, so many things to say. Okay, you're kind of quiet right now, so. That's usually bad. No, sorry. Um. So this is the first time that I had seen the movie as well. Um, I did not cry. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm a movie crier as well. Did you cheer for the guy losing his balls? He didn't lose his balls. (laughs) Well, no, that's true. Well, unless you're talking about John Lithgow. I spent so much of that film going, what the fuck is going on that <laughs> I, I'm not sure I could get the emotional resonance. Like maybe if I watched it again, because it took me a little while to sort of catch on that it was a dark comedy. Like at first I thought it was serious and it was, but, and then I kept trying to place the feminism in the eighties, which was really difficult. <laughs> um, and I kept Worrying that something bad would happen to Roberta, <laughs> who I weirdly thought was the only halfway normal character in the whole story. So I don't know. It was it was a very strange experience. And I it might also be clouded by the fact that the last movie that I saw was Anomalisa. <laughs> so <laughs> I need a movie palette cleanse or something. Um, was was that a downer, too? Um, I know you said it was a weird one. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a downer. It was very. Um, and that was actually the first Charlie Kaufman film I've ever seen. So, I guess this is pretty normal for him. But um, it was very sort of culturally critical and analytical, and it was very serious on that level. But it was also weird robot sex. <laughs> um, there yeah, was. I have an, a feeling Roberta might. Sex. <laughs> Yeah, it was it and it was so well animated that it felt like you were sitting in the room with them while they did it and it was it was a little bit surreal. And so this movie was also a little bit surreal and the guy that I saw both movies with has actually not allowing me to pick movies next time. <laughs> so So he didn't watch The World According to Garp with you or He did. He watched Anomalisa with me and then he watched The World According to Garp with me and now it's his turn to pick. <laughs> He'd never seen Garp before. No, neither one of us had seen it and it's funny because my mother's best friend was telling me like six months ago about this movie that she'd watched about this woman who was giving a blowjob in the driveway and then her kid gets killed and all of this stuff so I, I'm sort of watching it and I'm hearing Lynn's voice telling the story and I'm like is she talking about this movie? She must be talking about this movie because what other movie does this happen? So it was a very surreal experience for me the watching of the world according to garb well obviously it has a strong feminist uh, tinge that you said that kind of trying to place it in 80s of the 80s feminism movement now you're talking about 80s movement or you're talking about the movement as perceived in the 80s looking back even further in time which this place this film is supposed to take place a little bit of both actually like the okay so the movie felt for 1982 very progressive right yes. i mean roberta is a is a an integral part of the story and she's not treated any in any way as as abnormal as far as characters go um so it seemed sort of progressive for 1982 but there was also that underlying idea that feminists hate men mm-hmm. um and with the um the ellen jamesians and and the just 
total rejection of male society. And of course, um, Jenny is a rapist and <laughs> not in my view anything I want associated with feminism anywhere. So it was kind of the, there was sort of this tension with what the movie as a cultural artifact is saying about what's going on at the time with feminism. And this is on the heels of sort of second wave separatist feminists, um, which for feminists like me sort of drive us crazy. So it was really interesting the whole the whole dynamic and a young Robin Williams who was so young and Glenn Close is really young and just there was a lot to digest uh, would, would, would that would that really happen though with the feminist not allowing her, her like the son to go to the funeral of, of her mother just because he's the son and not a daughter yes okay. with that strain of sort of separatist 70s second wave feminists yes absolutely it's very much i actually had one in a class that i was in tell me that she didn't think that boys should be brought to spaces with women because boys can't be taught to be feminists because hmm. okay. i was yeah. raising a son at the time and it was yeah. like yeah, and that so that sort of thing is really actually in more old school feminists, like seventies feminists. It's actually fairly common. Um, but the funny part about that is they didn't have a problem with John Lithgow and drag. No, and that's what was so progressive about it because John Lithgow, and which I'll interrupt myself here to say, was a brilliant performance on his part, and it made me want to go watch more of his movies and maybe remember how much I like him. But he is a woman in this context and he's never treated as not a woman in this context. And that was what was so interesting about it because even now, if you look at sort of like Caitlyn Jenner and that, all the hoopla around that for this to ha for this character to exist in 1982, the way that this character existed was pretty amazing. I mean, you know, looking at it, it everyone, no one blinks an eye at him and his, his transition. I mean, Garp doesn't judge him. The, the 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 one sole character would be the guy, the the raving boyfriend coming and looking for his girlfriend that gets taken out by Roberta with a, a sideswipe tackle. But yeah. but everybody else in the film just accepts, you know, her yeah. for who She's she is. She's just one of the characters, right? And and that guy still thought he was a woman as well. He just thought he was a, a big dyke. Correct. Yeah, yeah he, he called him a dyke. Yeah. He said, it, and then he goes, "I'm not. I'm not a dyke." <laughs> so, yeah, it, it is a uh, it, it is very progressive, and ironically, 1982, uh, four Academy Award nominees who, uh, who took roles that were cross dressing: Dustin Hoffman and Tootsie, uh, uh, Julie Andrews and Robert Preston and Victor Victoria both got nominated, and then John Lithgow got nominated. So, 1982, a somewhat progressive year, at least at the Academy, for you know looking at sexuality through a different lens, a different perspective, and then of course we regressed and right. <laughs> went back to norms. But then we went to Tu Wong Fu. Yeah, yeah, that about ten, twelve years later. I mean, it's it's a big jump. But it is you know this would well. And this year we have Eddie Redmayne for the Danish Girl, which was a an unbelievable performance. That's a movie I bawled my eyes out for and picked my pieces of my heart up off the floor as I was leaving yeah. the theater. Um, yes, yes, indeed. And he's he's a chameleon, Eddie Redmayne. 
that Correct. he he was stellar in that. And I really loved him in a theory of everything too. I thought he did a wonderful job with Stephen Hawking. So it's interesting that it's sort of almost full circle. Now you, you kind of mentioned that, you know, like how progressive this w- film was in its time. Do you think this film was ahead of its time? Uh, you know, and the book is very similar to how they were ter- treat Roberta and everything like that. So the book possibly being ahead of its time as well. Do you think be- this film wasn't wildly successful? Do you think th- the subject matter affected it? Oh Yeah. Because the eighties, the eighties are the beginnings of the rise of the career woman, right? The you know shoulder pads, power, <laughs> suit girl. wearing, working girl sort of ethos that that happens. And this this movie is almost more about the nineties backlash to that than it is what's happening in the eighties. Do you know what I mean? Do you see what I'm saying here? hope i'm making sense no i mean no that makes sense you know it's one of those funny things you mentioned tootsie and uh garp coming out the same year i've always believed like tootsie was a more feminist movie than this one was i thought this was always just some wild harebrained story and i always thought tootsie was one of those movies where they purposely went out of their way to show that uh, here's a man who can't get a job because he's a man, but if he tries to portray a woman in the world of acting, he can get a job very easy And that the prejudices and the lines are very well drawn. And uh, once again, like I say, Garp, I just saw it as a wild hair, hair-brained film. And yes, there's feminists involved with Jenny and the Ellen Jamesians, but through the 30 years that I've watched this movie, I just never really stopped to put that much thought into the feminist aspect of it. Unlike a Tootsie where I think it's more out on front street. You don't think there's a feminist, uh, you know, theme or undertone to this film or you just, no, I I agree that there is, don't get me wrong. I just always saw it as a part of the movie. I never really thought it was like straight out on front street, the way say a Tootsie is. I have to jump in and second that I didn't even really think about the feminist, aspects of this film in any more of a context than oh my god that's not what feminism means to me (laughs) (laughs) and so when you guys I was listening when you guys first started talking about this and I was like oh you know yeah there are definitely some really strong feminist undertones but you also have to think about the fact that the the primary feminist in the film who is Jenny right she dies she gets very well punished for her transgression you know, she dies um, like a man. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, she gets she gets taken out and she's not a sympathetic character. Right. I mean, one of the questions that I said to my friend, I was like, why do they cat? Why are they typecasting Glenn Close as crazy? Because, you know, the, I believe this was before Fatal Attraction. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, they have done a very good job at typecasting her as the crazy bitch. Well, um, just just with Tootsie, I think Tootsie and both Victor Victoria, which we've spoken about, released the same year. That they're just more commercial, uh, audience friendly movies. And with the world according to Garp, it's just unorthodox storytelling. And it's a movie about writing and death and healing and life. And and it was told fragmented. It wasn't like a flowing story. So you know that's that's yeah. probably why it didn't stand out as much. 
Yeah, I think I agree with Shane on that one. That's probably why, to me, it wasn't like on Front Street the way I said Tootsie is, because I just see it as being one of the background scenarios with Jenny being a feminist and um, whether she actually – I've always questioned whether she actually wanted to consider herself a true feminist or not because she never really says it, but she just is by default and then goes with it. But it's just one of those things where I just like seeing the storytelling, the weird oddball things like a plane crashing into a side of the house, the Garp's battle with a dog, all the weird things that happen in this movie. That's what I always was spending my time focusing on. I do not believe the plane crashes into the house in the, in the book. I think that's creation of the film for comedy aspect. But well, then the book sucks. No, just kidding. <laughs> you think it was weirdly a blessing in his eyes because he loved flying so much that uh, a plane kind of christened the house for him. <laughs> well, and it's an interesting force. It's an interesting foreshadowing, right? He says the house is disaster proof. Yeah, that yes. because of the chances of anything bad happening to the house are are astronomical. I think it's the word that he uses. And then what happens, but his son drives in the driveway. Well, in his defense, that was outside of the house. (laughs) True. But I don't know. You know, one of the things I noticed was everybody in that family died of unnatural causes. His dad was killed in war. His mom was killed by assassin. He was killed by assassin and his son was killed in an accident. So it's very interesting that, um, his mom was so focused on everybody dies eventually, but uh, it, it wasn't natural reasons for any of their deaths. Yep, that's right. And we're discussing the feminist issue. It's directed by a male, George yeah. Roy Hill. So he's, I know he's coming, he's writing from a book and a screenplay by another male, Steve Tisch. But so was Tootsie and so was uh, Victor Victoria, both directed by males. But they've all got the feminist issues, and it seems to be something that's strong to this film and stands out to this day. You know, I want to go back to something that Jonna said, that she it took her a while to realize that this was a dark comedy. I mean, I guess looking, I look at it through the prism of what I knew Robin Williams of, of 1982. Robin Williams was known for comedy, and that was it. And you not having seen the film, you'd seen him do dramatic work that, that his mere presence in the film didn't indicate to you that it might be have some dark ele- or some co- comedic elements to it. Or I mean, cause to me, like the, even the opening sequence where she's talking about how she basically raped this guy so she could have a baby is, I mean, it's pretty dark, the subject matter, but it's played hilariously with her father not being able to hear everything and her mother fainting right there after she gives this graphic description of what she did, and which I thought was one of the best moments in the film. I think it was just the processing of it, right? I mean, there's so much going on, and I didn't really know what to expect going in. I had sort of read the little plot synopsis that Amazon puts up, which gave really... Not a lot of clue. It was about this disaffected writer. And, you know, I was like, oh, okay, it's Robin Williams, whatever. And so I didn't really, at first, because it did have that sort of dramatic flair to it. It was, there was, you know, he's growing up. There's, and there are incidents, there are funny incidents, but it, at first I thought it was kind of serious. And then after a while, I'm like, well, duh. (laughs) Yeah. Dark comedy here. um, Yeah. 
I mean, I laughed, but I probably the first real laugh that I can remember was when the piano fell down uh, after the you know in that dream sequence when the the guy came out of the window and then the piano fell on top of him. That's that's sort of when I laughed for the first time. Even laughed though for the I first was, time. Think, that's that's the horrible. first time. Wow. <laughs> Pro- probably, yeah. I, I mean, I was just emotionally involved right from that beginning part where you first see. I mean, the way Jessica Tandy and Hume Cronin were talking as well and, and reacting to their daughter as well. I didn't even same. realize it was Jessica Tandy first. <laughs> yeah, that's Miss Daisy. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> well, you and know, I, one of the things I think is that because a lot of Robin, William com- Robin Williams comedies, he's just so over the top out there, speaking a mile in a minute, like Popeye style, that if he doesn't do that in a film, you might not realize that he's doing subtle humor. I think I was spending some a lot of that time sort of with the time capsule aspects of it, like, oh, my God, Glenn Close is so young in this movie. Robin Williams is so young in this movie and trying to pick out who the other people were, because there were a few that I thought had to be people that I would have heard of later that that I couldn't place right then, like Jessica Tandy. Mm -hmm. So I think I was sort of marveling at the at opening the time capsule more than I was paying attention to the overall umbrella of the plot and the style of it. No, I was going to hit on your point, Chris. Um, that's the one thing I love about Robin Williams in this movie. And then again, in um, dead poet society and um, goodwill hunting and to a certain extent in uh, good morning, Vietnam, I grew up, like you just said, watching him do all these wacky antics and always being on and always being the guy who looked like he was snorting a pile of cocaine every single morning for breakfast. When you get to see him do serious acting or have some serious um, material, but then having that little bit of comedic undertone to it, the man was, was absolutely brilliant. And I think that's what always drew me to him was first seeing him in this movie when I was a kid. And then I don't really remember watching a whole lot of his other movies, but the four that I just mentioned, those things made him what I think was great about his acting career and makes him a legendary actor, in my opinion. And and I'll agree with that, is that, you know, I grew up loving Robin Williams, and Chris and I unfortunately had, the I guess, the pleasure of doing a podcast about him right after he died a couple of years ago and we were discussing his career and his films. And this is the film that, that to me, this is the first real film that he did that, you know, Popeye was Popeye, but you know, and then he did a whole load of crap after. after oh yeah, film. definitely. The survivors and, uh, God, what was, I can't even remember some of the other, uh, Moscow, on the like Hudson. Moscow on the Hudson. Moscow on the Hudson's okay. I just don't put it up there at the same levels. This one or good morning, Vietnam, dead poet society or goodwill hunting. Those are the ones that are Fisher King. I, I find those yeah. kind of, that's the core of his great performances, those four or five films. And, you know, but even still that I remember dead poet society. Yeah. This, yep. this film, when it came out, I remember seeing the trailer for this film in the theater and the way this film was marketed is they showed you the sequence of the plane crashing and his statement of this will be safe here, you know, which is kind of played for comedy. And the scene with the guy in the truck where he's smashing the truck and kind of acting kind of rabid that they played to that Mork element. And that's what drew me as a child to want to see this film. 
And and I'll freely admit, the first time I saw it, I was disappointed in it because it was not the film I wanted to see. This is, in fact, reading the book, I'm going, I have a hard time. I was, I have a hard time seeing Mork play this, you know, and that's kind of how I knew him. And it took me a, probably a second or third viewing before I really started liking the film for itself. And I do, I do agree with you. It is not, it's not a cohesive story that you see, you know, ah, this is where it's going to go here. It is kind of just vignettes of this, this character's life. And the book is the same way, except you're missing a lot of the vignettes um, because they, they shrunk it down for a two and a, two hour and 10 minute, two hour and 15 minute movie. And, you know, I almost, I almost feel that for a person to truly appreciate the film and, you know, to get a lot of the, the context and the, the story elements, you have to read the novel and see where it is. Cause there's entire elements, entire sequences that don't make the, did not make the film. And then there's things that got it added in, I think to add that comedy element, to draw in that Mork and Mindy audience. Yeah, I'll agree with you. Exactly. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and seeing all the, advertisements yeah you're absolutely right it did look like some wacky zany comedy with robin williams or mork or popeye or whatever it was at that point in time but then i remember as a kid this is probably the movie that warped me the most of any (laughs) movie out there because gee i don't know why i you know you're seven eight years old and you're watching this movie and it's like Okay, he's getting in these battles with a dog where they're biting each other's ears off. He's playing with a little girl behind the bushes, and then later on in life is playing around with the same little girl behind the bushes and his mom doing wacky stuff, the airplane going into the house. It was just one of those things that I I just processed it for so many years that I started out seeing it as this weird, weird comedy, and now as I get older, like, and I'm going with Patrick's thread from earlier. Now I see it as a more serious movie because of the material. And I've just appreciated being able to see the same movie so many times over so many years and taking a little bit of a different vibe from it each time and learning more and more from it. And that's what I think makes this a great piece of artwork. It is. And I think um, with the casting of Robin Williams, that's, that's balls out for, from, and maybe, you know, the director as well, again, and the casting agent. And I'm sure that they casted other actors, but for someone who probably hadn't proven himself in complete drama yet, they took a bit of a gamble by putting him in as the lead. And it worked, obviously. Um, the, we briefly talked about, when I interviewed Robin Williams, we briefly talked about his dramatic roles, and you could see in his eyes he really appreciated doing them, but I don't think he got the recognition on many of them as he would have liked. Well, I don't think they were successful, but I think he got the recognition for them. That, I mean, this is – people still talk about this film today. The people that saw it in the day back in the day and saw the evolution of Robin Williams's mm-hmm. acting career – saw this as kind of the first dramatic role that this is oh, yeah. the first time that he, he stood up and said, I'm something other than Mork and Mindy. I mean, cause even yeah. Popeye is just a, you know, it's just a different character is all it is for, you know, silly for silly's sake. And if, if he would have, I don't want to say ballsy enough to follow this up with another dramatic role instead of doing like the survivors and club paradise and a lot of that other junk that he ended up doing. When did he do Cadillac men? Cadillac know? man was 1989. Oh, okay. So, um, or 1990, it was, it was when I worked in the movie theater. So that's, I knew when it came out. So it came out around then, but he, you know, he, 
he, you know, he, he ran, he ran back to comedy after this and the, this wasn't as successful as Popeye. And, and then he had a, a series of uh, bad films and it wasn't until good morning Vietnam. And he got the Oscar nomination that he was able to finally kind of seal it and crack it and say, I can do drama as well as comedy. And, and, you know, after in the nineties, after, Goodwill Hunting. He kind of got. He he did a lot of dramatic stuff, but I think he was really becoming kind of esoteric. And he was, you know, doing Bicentennial Man and What Dreams May Come. He was really looking for different projects. And somewhere along the line, I think he lost his audience. Is that that they weren't they weren't following him anymore? Which I find is disappointing because the films aren't bad. They're just not. They're not. They're not flubber. They're they're not these big box office hits that are going to you know. cause you to be able to do whatever project you wanted and and the studios didn't want to take risks on him and it possibly led to a lot of his depression later in life but uh, you know i wonder how much his drug use also affected that well he's yeah i mean his drug use and his drug use was primarily in the 80s i mean that's he had an alcoholism issue in the 2000s but his you know he He's most notably after John Belushi died, pretty much stepped away from drugs. I mean, there may have been he may have been some flare ups, but he was a very abusive drug user during during this time frame, you know, during kind of the production of this film. And it wasn't until uh, Belushi died that he finally said, you know, I'm 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 getting away from it. And he often talked about that is that is the, the catalyst for him getting sober or attempting to remain as sober as he could during those time frames. It was always a, a threat out there. I'll blame the drug use for his choice in movies there in the eighties <laughs> and part of the nineties as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, he, he club paradise. That wasn't too bad. He got oh, no. away go to tropical Island with Peter O'Toole and Twiggy would have been all right. <laughs> they don't all have to be, you know, goodwill hunting. I understand that sometimes you're just going to do, Oh, where am I going to film this movie? Oh, okay. I'll do that. And how much are you going to pay me? Sure. Whatever. Do I want to read the script? Not necessary. You know, like it's, it's, it's not important to me. I'm, I'm they're actors like, you know, whatever job we do, there are days that our, our job is not as good. We're not as good at it as other days. And so I don't expect them to always have good performances, you know, in every film or every project. And even still the, the actor is just one of many moving pieces that, the film can be derailed by many things. The director, the editor, the the, the score, person who scores it, the producer, anybody could ruin the movie. You know, everybody has good intentions, but Club Paradise is not a good film. <laughs> not, as bad, <laughs> not as bad as The Survivors, but it's, it's, it's still, it's not a good film. But this film is a film that I had, I long wanted to, to review. I, you know, I'm glad Chad had said he wanted to review it because it was one I, I'd say, oh, I'll do it someday, but uh, yeah, this is it. I, I'm kind of surprised I'm doing it with people who had never seen it because, you know, everybody I've, who've done, I've done the podcast with has always said, oh, I've seen it, but I don't want to do that one yet. You know, so, you know, to have two people, two people who had never seen the project and they're coming into it at new eyes. I'm, I'm ultimately going to be curious of what their initial perspective is on this film. So. Yeah, I'm in the same boat as you are. I couldn't believe that people hadn't seen this movie because I thought it was just one of those things that everybody had seen. But apparently it was just you and I, Patrick and Chris. So <laughs> here's my question for you all. Do, does, do you find any of these characters likable? Because Roberta. I personally don't. Roberta's probably the only one. Uh, yeah, I'll agree. I think Roberta's the only overall likable character. I think 
it's one of those situations where all these people are, for the lack of a better word, human and flawed like everybody else. And I think this movie sort of draws that out more than anything. Yeah, there's only three to me that were likable. The prostitute, the girl that got <laughs> raped. Um, what was her name? Of course, and, Chris always has to like the prostitute. I don't the, know yeah, why that well, always. Well, no, she. I liked her. She was genuine. I mean, she didn't have a, a, a legit job, I guess you could say, but I thought she was a a very good person in general. Uh, the the girl that got raped, the uh, Ellen um, Ellen James, the Ellen James, and then Roberta. The and um, everybody else, you know. I mean, those three kind of own their lives, but you know, um, Garp, he uh, was so upset and butthurt about his wife cheating on him, but he cheated on her. His, exactly. Did he his, though? I'm not convinced that he did. He I did. thought he was just dreaming about it. He did. Because, there was a lot. There was a lot of sex in cars. <laughs> well, he he's the conversation. There's a there's a point in the conversation with the babysitter that it sort of switches, and then they. It looks like they have sex. And then he opens his eyes like he woke up, like he was fantasizing about it. And that was the only th- only way that it made sense to me, because if he had really done it, it would be weird for him to react as badly as he did to his wife doing it. it so did he do did he really do it in the book or yeah, he had he had extramarital affairs in the book? So yeah. with the OK, because so. in the movie, I didn't see I didn't see enough support for that. So the only Something that I would kind of go with that, though, is that I, I always wondered if the guy in the red pickup truck was the the confrontations were a figment of his imagination um, as if he never really caught the guy. But so I could see maybe his his mind as a writer would just take over that to cope with situations that he couldn't deal with in real life. Right. No. And he did with the piano falling on the guy too i mean there were a couple of different places where he basically rewrites the story and then it takes it a second to go back to where it was headed yeah i mean Mm -hmm. going back to your original thing chris is the characters are flawed but i generally like most of the characters because i find them very real and it's kind of what chad and i've already talked about is looking at this film as i you know, I approach it from a different perspective that as, you know, as a teenager, that kind of horny man aspect of Garp and the sexuality of the film was very interesting to me. And I, and I, I liked that about his character. You know, what I really resonated with me is the, the fatherhood aspect of him in this particular film and that that he like he just liked to watch the kids, you know, that that meant the world to him and that meant more to me in this film watching it and made the character appeal to me. I liked him because, uh, yeah, is he flawed? Yeah, he shouldn't have had the extramarital affair. And he is kind of hypocritical for responding the way he did. But you're talking about he's, you know, he's a writer who's narcissistic throughout the entire film of I want my books to be more popular. Why is my mom's book so popular and blah, blah, blah. I mean, he just he, he can never find the kind of contentment and success except for being a father. And he's, that's the, the peaceful times for him when things seem to work. And that's one of the things I liked about his character. I, I agree. Roberta is probably the, the easiest character to like because she's, I mean, she's, she sacrifices for everyone. She's willing to throw her body in, in front of Glenn Close for, to take a bullet if she could. And, and, she, and, and she's upset because she could, she didn't do, react in time and blames herself for that stuff. But so she's the most, likable character but even glenn close as much as she kind of 
acts as the crazy bitch. She plays the nurse element. All those people come to her house because she wants to help them heal. And ultimately that's, she does for Garp and his family. She does help them heal. And that's, that's a place of safety for them after they never return back to the home uh, to go back to that original house, at least in the book, they don't go back to that original house. They stay there for a long time because they have, they, they, it takes them that long to heal from the emotional damage that they've inflicted on each other and to recover from the grief they have over Walt's death. Part of me yeah. wonders how much they grieved after the initial one, because very soon they're just like, all right, let's make a new baby. And it almost seemed like uh, I, I kind of uh, can't remember correctly what the, the conversation was, but didn't his wife ask if he missed Walt? And he's like, and he was kind of like, yeah, a little or no. not. <laughs> You know, that's not, did that's I, not how he did. <laughs> yeah. No, I think okay. he was a lot yeah. more serious about it. I mean, he, but it didn't seem like at a certain point he really missed his son anymore because they made another one, a little girl. Well, I, I think it's a film's interpretation of life goes on and mm-hmm. some sort. There's a, there's an aspect of healing that the wound is there, but it's it's scabbed over a little bit, and I I do think that that. That would be one of my criticisms is that whole sequence where you're seeing, you know, Helen and Garp, you know, kind of rekindle and reconnect again. And then first thing she says is, I want another baby, <laughs> which is like, OK, you're, you're really pushing it too far. I know that's the purpose of the film is like we've got to advance the fact that they do have another kid. But like in the real world, maybe maybe you're going to need a, a little bit longer to heal before you look for that. It's like your favorite dog died. And you're like, eh, we'll just go get, get another. another. Yeah, I know. And that that I thought was a, a little I, I fault that in the fact that the the rush to it because of the uh, the uh, nature of a film trying to cover as much material as they could, that they had to get to the fact that they had another kid. Yeah. And they were already at like the two hour mark, I think, at that point. I mean, yeah, this was not this was not a short film. No, it's it's not. No. Especially in 1982. It's not a short film. I mean, most films were around 90 minutes in 82. And this was, you know, the comedies especially were around 90 minutes. Anybody who knew, should have known this wasn't a comedy just by looking at the running time. <laughs> uh, just to rewind back to Chris's original question. The other likable person to me was the older Cushy. It was only a brief moment, um, played by Jenny Wright, but, you know, they were recalling their younger days and she was being nice to him and showing him, you know, it was his first time. So I, I just thought that was a nice moment too. And I liked Amanda Plummer at the end when she finally turned up as Ellen. That was just a quite unassuming little moment I thought was pretty amazing to cap off such an effective film. I just really quickly wanted to talk about Glenn Close. I thought that she was just marvelous in this movie. And she was. Most of uh, every movie she's ever been in. Everybody talks about how um, Faye Dun or not Faye Dunaway. Now I can't even think of the lady's name. Meryl Streep gets uh, nominated for an Academy Award with every role she takes. But I've always thought that Glenn Close is head and shoulders above Meryl Streep for years upon years. Uh, I don't know of a movie she's ever done that I've seen where this lady wasn't just fascinating to watch i mean even on her tv series damages she she is so great at what she does she knows how to take a character and make the most of it and she makes you want to actually see her on the screen and see what she's going to do next and listen to every word she says and i think this was her first major act or her was her first film debut or was her film debut and she had a great start and then went with it from there. 
Yeah, this was this was her first film. Yep. And yeah, she did so. an amazing job, even if the sort of way that she was written as a feminist drove me crazy that it's easy to separate that from the actress right you don't have to like the character to, to think that the actor or actress did a wonderful job and she she's pretty amazing I felt the same way about Fatal Attraction that she's a great actor definitely and I mean acting all around from Glenn Close and her film selections her whole career have been outstanding and calculated uh, I mean the acting in this film or just as amazing Mary Beth Hurt as well I thought as Helen you know she had some pretty strong moments as well and just as a collective this was a great ensemble no I, I honestly feel that every character uh, every actor in, inhabited the character very very well uh, and including J- John Lithgow that John had mentioned earlier that it, wanting to go back and see some of his earlier work I mean this is Early in his career, got Academy Award nominated, and long before he started chewing scenery in Third Rock from the Sun and Raising Cain and the other films. Pre Buckaroo Banzai. Well, only a couple of years before Buckaroo Banzai, uh, which I have never seen through to the end, so I don't know, I don't remember him that well in that film. But I mean, there's this this year, and I believe the next year he was in Terms of Endearment. So he, he I mean, he, he's doing these very subdued characters early on that. You know, that I really, you know, although this is a a different character, it's he's not he's not playing it like he did in Third Rock from the Sun, where he's a lot of yelling and screaming and things like that is that which he won multiple Emmys for for some reason. But it's I I liked his take on this film and I thought he was very entertaining in it. And uh, as we've kind of already said, one of the best things of the of the the entire film of the story as well as the film. Yeah, it's hard to believe this is the same guy who was battling Kevin Bacon in Footloose. (laughs) Right. Uh, George Roy Hill, the director, he also made a movie called Funny Farm. And like the crazy pickup driver that keeps going through the stop signs and at excessive speed in this film, he had a similar sort of thing happen in Funny Farm, which was his final film, uh, with a postman that used to go flying around corners and throwing letters in the air and all that. So... I don't know whether that was like a recall back to Garp or, or not when he made Funny Farm, but I thought that was pretty interesting. And Funny Farm is one of Chevy Chase's best films, too. I, I, I still love that film. I think that film actually works and is underappreciated in Chevy Chase's career. And I'll agree. Yeah. He is a great director. He's made, I'll say, three of my favorite films ever in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, World According to Garp, and the greatest hockey movie ever made, Slapshot. George Roy Hill is just a great director, and I'll see anything that his name is attached to. It was funny to me that first uh, a little boy who was so obsessed with his dad and flying as a, you know, just as a little kid, he didn't fly ever in his adult life, just um, just as he died on the helicopter. You know, and that's something that I remember the first time I ever saw this movie. And at the end, he goes, I'm I always thought he said, I'm finally flying. And I always thought the same thing. Why in the hell did the guy never go flying? I mean, he could have. There was nothing preventing him from doing it. So now seeing that that's not what he said, I question it even more. Why in the hell didn't he ever go flying if he was so obsessed with it? You know, I, I honestly think he do, he does, you know, in the book that when he goes to New York and everything like that, that he, there there's there's trips and things like that. And I got to you, you you talk about Slapshot and Butch Cassidy and World of Carding Garp. You don't bring up the Sting. 
Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot The Sting. Thank you. The I Sting forgot about that. Awesome. That's another great movie. <laughs> I mean, that's when you say George Roy Hill, that's the first film I think of. And oh, sorry. I, to me, I, it's always Slapshot. I don't know why. And then Butch Cassidy <laughs> and then this one. So I guess it's the hockey fan in me. I, I grew up in the desert. There's no hockey here. So. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> uh, we have hockey down under, but it's on grass. <laughs> all right uh, the world according to garp what did we think of it in 1982 if we saw it and what do we think of it now does it stand the test of time and since we introduced her last we'll let her go first jonna oh the world according to garp i would give it four floating babies <laughs> um and those I, are live babies right they're not, say, they're not face down in the water babies, are they? I would. I mean, what we're, we're not going into dead baby jokes at this point, are we, Jonna? I was just thinking floating babies, like in the film. That's oh, all. Okay. I, I will leave it to, to listener interpretation. <laughs> listener interpretation. No, I thought it was really enjoyable. I laughed a lot. I thought the performances were great. It's definitely worth a watch. I was a little bit taken aback by the strangeness of it, but I appreciated it. Chris. Well, this is definitely a film that I appreciate more as an adult. I mean, there's just so many things that are going to go over your head as a kid in the 80s. Yeah, I think this is a, a completely different movie as an adult. And I do enjoy it. I mean, I find it to be a terrible movie in terms of the, the story. I think it, it's just terrible people. I do find the feminine feminism aspect of it interesting. But they're really not great people either because they're willing to kill men you know, even though they, they make them the enemy. So, I mean, there's nobody really, there's not too many re- people redeeming in this film, but everybody does an excellent job. It's a great story. Did go, It was a little bit long for me. It was a little slow in parts, but overall, I think this is a movie that stands the test of time. Shane? Uh, well, I'm sort of ashamed that I didn't see it long before this, <laughs> you, you but should be. I, I'm you should really be. glad. That yeah, I you really have. should be. You're a film critic, you say? <laughs> that's, that's what you do? Look, very few movies slip through the cracks with me, and uh, this was just one that did, and I can't explain why. I'm just stoked now that I finally have seen it and been able to talk about it. And I just think that it stands out completely. I wasn't prepared uh, for the emotional state I was going to be in while watching it. And the, the right down to the, even that little animated scene that happens in it, oh, it just it just kept surprising me. This film, and and as far as the acting is confirmed, uh, concerned all around, like I said, I, I can't fault any performance here. Yes, yeah, some of them were a little bit despicable. They were annoying characters, but all of them were top notch. Just at you know at the top of their game. I really liked it. And George Roa Hill, another film. I can't believe I haven't seen it. I know I keep saying that, and. It stands the test of time. I really liked it, and it's something I would recommend to people. Uh, Chad, I'll go since this is your film. I'll let you go last. Uh, you know, as I said, I, I was looking forward to reviewing this film. I I didn't like it the first time I saw it because I wanted more of the Mork type comedy. Um, however, very soon after watching it again on H, because it came, it was an HBO loop film. I saw it on HBO multiple times. Uh, it was a film that I really started to like and appreciate. And I, you know, that was as a 10 or 11 year old kid. So, you know, growing up now, having grown up now and seeing it, I, and I probably haven't seen it for about 12, 13 years. It, 
it has a different different resonance to me. I, I think it it was a great film back then. It absolutely does stand the test of time. I do think, ironically, this is a film that I would probably appreciate them remaking and being more, uh, you know, taking the source material and expanding it out, making I don't know, like a, a you know, like a short miniseries on HBO, like four hours or something like that, so they could really do the the source material justice. And kind of tell the cover the the themes in detail rather than giving it just kind of this cursory look. Um, although I do think it would be hard to recapture kind of the magic of some of the actors in this, but I, I, it's not a film that I would be offended by a retelling. I just don't know if people would want to see it because it's it is it is very, I would think it's very dated material from nineteen the nineteen seventy eight perspective on fem, feminism and sexuality and a lot of other things have evolved so much that. The, the character of Roberta isn't as strange today as it was in 1982. And it, it doesn't make as profound of effect of how you treat that character as, as, as you would today. So, but does stand the test of time, Chad, your film. Okay. I don't know if I knew what a dark comedy was in the early eighties when I first saw this, but I loved it back then as a dark comedy. I thought John Lithgow, Glenn Close, Robin Williams were all, top-notch at the top of their game and now since i'm seeing it almost 30 years later i see it as an a plus dark dramedy if you will um i see it in a different light like we talked about earlier um i see more of the family aspect of it more of the feminism part of it and not just the oddball incidents that took place that made up the whole movie so i will always say this movie stands the test of time i think everybody should see this movie and john and shane i'm glad you guys finally put this one in your uh, vault of movies you've seen and um, i think everybody should go out and have everybody watch this movie whether the person likes it or not because i think it's one of those essential movies that will make you judge yourself, judge your family, judge movies, judge everything a little bit differently. I would like to say that I felt Michael's pain as an adult, as an adult more <laughs> <laughs> than as a kid seeing it. Some accident uh, in your high school era there, Chris? Something? Problem with the zipper, I guess you could say. <laughs> well, there was that kid at the us? beginning of the film. <laughs> yes. Oh, that certainly never happened to me, but I would like to mention <laughs> I love the house. I, <laughs> I love the house and the location by the ocean. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a beach beach guy, so I really appreciated that, and it just, I just wanted to go for a swim. And watch Are you undertow. always kept careful for the undertow? Yeah. Well, it's funny you should say that because when you're a surfer, the water can be going one way and the uh, well, going two ways at once. So, yeah, I am quite aware of the undertow, especially when I'm surfing. All right, that does it for this week's review of The World According to Garp. Thanks again for joining us and listening to our little bi-weekly podcast. If you've had a good time, the fun doesn't have to stop here. You can follow us on Facebook at uh, Lunchtime Movie Review or on Twitter at Lunchtime Movie. On either Facebook or Twitter, you can keep up on our written film reviews, news on upcoming films and Blu-ray releases, and information on upcoming podcasts on the MHM Podcast Network, including this show, The Lunchtime Movie Review, Movie House Memories, Mail Bonding, The Number Two Review, Film House Hustlers, Sunday Seconds with the Duke, and Movie House Concessions. Did I get them all? I think you got them all. All right. <laughs> Additionally, you can follow us on all our little side projects. Chris hosts the number two review and film house hustlers, which can be heard on the MHN podcast network. And you can follow him on Twitter at Haley creative. 
Shane writes regularly for SydneyUnleashed.com and is a contributor to CultRadioGoGo.com. You can follow him on Twitter at Movie underscore Analyst, where you can keep up on his film reviews and celebrity interviews. Chad appears uh, frequently on Lunchtime Movie Review, and you can follow him on Twitter at This underscore Is underscore CMM. And Jonna has uh, appeared on Movie House Concessions and hopefully will be coming back to Lunchtime Movie Review for other films that I'm she sure I will. may or may not have ever seen. I don't know. So, uh, finally, if you've enjoyed yourselves and you download us off either iTunes or Stitcher, make sure to rate our podcast on either one of those two platforms. And if you have a chance, write a short review of the podcast. Of course, we always like the reviews that are positive, but we appreciate any feedback that we can get from any loyal listeners of the show. Well, that does it for this episode of Lunchtime Movie Review. Until next time, I'm Patrick. I'm Chad. I'm Chris. Bye, everyone. I'm Shane. <laughs> I'm Jonna. And we got to get out of here right now, and you guys are invited. This podcast is intended for entertainment and information purposes only. The theme music for Lunchtime Movie Review, Fireworks, is provided courtesy of Alexander Nakaranda at SerpentSoundStudios.com under a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 license. All original content of this podcast is the intellectual property of Lunchtime Movie Review, the MHM Podcast Network, and Fuzzy Bunny Slippers Entertainment, LLC, unless otherwise noted. Noted.